What happens when we're growing up kind of lays the foundation for things that we work on the rest of our lives. It doesn't mean we don't make progress. We can make tremendous progress. And also it's okay if we keep revisiting the same same struggles over and over. You're listening to CWC Talks, a podcast from the University of Florida Counseling and Wellness Center. In each episode, we discuss mental health topics related to the experience of being a student and share the struggles and joys of taking care of your mental health while in college. Please note, CWC Talks is not a substitute for counseling and may be sensitive for people who have experienced trauma. All guests' views are their own and do not speak for the CWC, the University of Florida, or the mental health profession as a whole. In this episode, Dr. Sarah Nash and Judah Cordovano, clinical case manager at the CWC, discuss boundaries. Welcome, Judah. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. What are we going to talk about today, Judah? I think we're going to talk about boundaries and what they are, how we set them, why they're important, how do we maintain them. Sounds good. So what's a boundary? So boundaries are the invisible line between us and other people. When I think of boundaries, I visualize a fence. And some fences are uh, in good repair, some are in disrepair, some have gates, some don't exist. Some are, are too strong or too impenetrable. So that's a metaphor for our relationships with other people. Boundaries are essentially where we end and other people begin. Why is it invisible? It's invisible because it's like a lot of things uh, in relationships. It's not something tangible, although it could be if necessary. There might be times where we need to take something that's implied or unspoken and make it explicit. There might be times where we need to have a physical boundary, like not living with another person anymore. But often they're they're invisible. Why do they matter so much? Why are boundaries so important? We don't have boundaries with other people or if we have unhealthy or poor boundaries with other people, it's exhausting. It's exhausting because either other people are intruding on us and making themselves welcome in our lives in ways that we don't want. They're maybe robbing us of our autonomy or we're obligated when we have poor boundaries or non-existent boundaries, we're obligated to take care of other people. And so the key to any healthy relationship, whether that's a romantic relationship or a friendship or family members, the key is healthy boundaries where everyone knows their role um, and everybody respects um, those invisible lines. What happens if your boundary about how close you want me to get to you is Mm -hmm. different from my boundary about how close I want us to get. And I'm going to give an example because that can be an emotional thing, right? That Mm -hmm. can be an emotional mismatch, Mm -hmm. but can be helpful to even think about physically how close do you want to stand to someone Mm -hmm. when you're talking to them? right? Mm -hmm. Like how close do you want that person to stand to you? And we're in the era of social distancing. So our comfort level has changed around that. Mm -hmm. But how close do any two people get when they're talking to each other? There can be a difference in comfort Mm -hmm. um, from one person and another. What Mm -hmm. happens when, so what happens when there's a mismatch? You know, as we're talking about boundaries and especially physical boundaries, I'm thinking about the concept of consent. 
Consent is a word that we use to describe our boundary, usually a physical boundary with someone else, but all boundaries require consent. So when there's a mismatch, the default healthy thing to do is to defer to the person with the more conservative boundary. If I'm in a situation with someone standing too close to me and I want more space between us, I might step away. That person, ideally, would pick up on my nonverbal cue and recognize that I'm, in an unspoken way, asking for more space. But I'm not really asking. I'm setting my boundary. I am inserting asserting and inserting more space between us. If that person were to then move closer to me, then that's a violation of my boundary. When our boundaries are violated, that we need to kind of up the ante and start becoming more assertive. So that, I I appreciate all of that because I feel like that really lays the stakes of this conversation, that boundaries are necessary in all of our relationships. And one of the ways that we can experience really traumatic violations of our boundaries is around consent Mm-hmm. And when you say consent, I think about consent related to you know sexual behavior, mm-hmm. but consent applies to all forms of human interaction as well. Yes. It's the key to any healthy relationship is that whatever's going on, whatever interaction is happening between two people that both parties are consenting. So where do we learn about boundaries? It's it's really interesting because it seems like we land in adulthood with some ideas about boundaries. And what happens is that we learn about boundaries like we learn about all relationships in our families of origin. Usually it's parents. Sometimes it could be, you know, grandparent or whoever takes care of us when we're small. When we're very small, when we're infants, our boundaries are poor. And I don't mean that in an unhealthy way. That's a necessary thing. We're completely dependent on our caregivers. As we get older, The natural process and the healthy process is for the child to seek more autonomy and for the adult to recede more and more in terms of their um, responsibility or their direction or instruction over the child. And so you can see this, for example, on a playground. You might see very young children more often with their adults And then when you look at older children, you'll notice that they go off and play with their playmates more and more, and they check in with their adults less often, and that's that's the healthy progression. And so what we learn is, the way that we learn about boundaries is, here's what, as you're growing up, here's what I'm allowed to do, here's what I'm capable of doing, to what extent the adults that take care of you respect your autonomy is where you learn about boundaries. As I'm listening, I'm I'm hearing kind of the ideal way that we learn about boundaries that at first we are babies and we're totally dependent on our caregivers. And then over time, as we get more curious about the world and start to separate a little bit from our caregivers, they're supposed to kind of let go gradually Mm -hmm. uh, as we grow and develop. And that's, you know, what we would think of more as like the healthy pattern. Mm -hmm. I'm just imagining there's lots of places where that can go awry. Yes, unfortunately. And this can be in big ways that are traumatic or even in small ways that we get messages when we're kids growing up about what's okay and what's not okay. 
So we might have parents who were to some extent negligent. And so we were required to be autonomous way earlier than we needed to be. And what we might have learned is that we don't need other people. We've got it figured out. And so where we might land in adulthood is we might become an adult who has really rigid boundaries because I've learned how to take care of myself. I don't need to let anybody in. And so that's just one example. Not every, you know, not every adult with rigid boundaries had a neglectful caregiver and not every adult with a neglectful caregiver ends up with rigid boundaries, but that's kind of a, an example. Conversely, we might have had an adult in our lives who was intrusive, who was reluctant to give us the autonomy that we were seeking. And so when we grow up, we end up letting our our boundaries are what's called diffuse. We let too many people in or we let people do too much with us. Um, We don't understand that we have the capacity for consent or we don't know how to assert ourselves. Those first relationships are where we learn about our boundaries with other people. Where did you personally learn about boundaries and what were some of the patterns that got laid down for you early on? I will share a little bit about my family of origin. Um, I experienced trauma in my family of origin. So I had a parent who was abusive and overbearing and intrusive And then I had a parent who was passive. I grew up learning how to stick up for myself in that very specific context. And then I was a grown-up out in the outside world, in the world outside of my family of origin. And what I remember about myself and what I still struggle with, because what happens when we're growing up kind of lays the foundation for things that we work on the rest of our lives. It's not... It doesn't mean we don't make progress. We can make tremendous progress. And also it's okay if we keep revisiting the same, the same struggles over and over. What I noticed about myself growing up in my family is um, my boundaries kind of swung wildly. In a lot of situations, I was very conflict averse. I didn't know how to assert myself. I didn't know, um, I didn't know I could give consent in certain situations. I didn't know I could, for example, ask to speak with someone's supervisor if, I, if my needs weren't being met. Um, so I, I was trampled on in a lot of ways. And so I, what I learned growing up is I learned to model that passive parent. And I learned uh, the way to stay safe in my family was to be passive. And if I was triggered in the right way in adulthood, my boundaries would swing wildly toward aggressive communication. And so, again, I saw that modeled for me by, by the abusive parent. I didn't know what assertiveness was, which is that middle ground between passivity and aggression. So that's something that I had to work on, and, and I still work on. Thank you. It's, it sounds like staying passive was a survival strategy, you know, that you learned growing up that – when I think of passive, I also think of like small or maybe even invisible at times mm-hmm. and just wondering with an, with an abusive, overbearing parent, how it could be really useful to be able to make yourself small. Not attract attention, not make things worse than they already are. Right. 
Right. And then you grow up and maybe you're in a work situation or trying to figure out a romantic relationship and suddenly all of that learning that you did mm-hmm. about how to how to navigate becomes more problematic because it may not there may be situations where you really need to be able to stand up for yourself um, yeah. and do it in a way that like doesn't scare people, right? Right. When you're when you're in a chi- when you're a child in a, a situation like that, the stakes are always very high. And so when you leave that context where the stakes aren't critical all the time, when you leave that traumatic environment and you go out into the world where most of your interactions are pretty low stakes, you don't know how to navigate that. So things that are relatively minor feel critical. I had a therapist once explain that to me. If you take a tree that's grown up in, like maybe it's a tree that really needs a lot of sunlight to thrive, but it grew up in a very, at the bottom of a very dark forest floor. And so it was just scrounging for the littlest scraps of light that it could find. Um, And it didn't get to grow very big because it wasn't in, it wasn't in a healthy environment. And then you transplant that tree mm-hmm. to the perfect space for it. It's got lots of open air around it. It's not competing with other trees for the light. Mm-hmm. It's not going to instantly become a huge tree. It's going to take time to adapt to that new set of circumstances and time to, and it may never be as tall as it would have been if it hadn't mm-hmm. been born into that dark forest that wasn't appropriate for it. But I, mm-hmm. I just, I always think about that when I start counseling students who have just emerged from their, their family of origin, right? Where they mm-hmm. spent the first 18, 19 years of their lives in this mm-hmm. little community and that perhaps the conditions weren't really there for thriving. Mm -hmm. And we've just kind of transplanted you to a new environment. And we're going to need to address um, the ways in which you have adapted Mm -hmm. to circumstances and that those boundaries, those ways of adapting may, may not serve you now that you're out in the open air. And how can we begin to look at that together? I'm so glad you're using um, a gardening metaphor that was really beautiful I love gardening. Something that happens um, a lot is that when you buy a plant and you bring it home, that transition from taking it from the pot and putting it to the ground is its own trauma. And there have been a lot of times that I've put something into the ground. I'm thinking of a particular plant I have in my yard right now. I don't know. It like died overnight. What I know about gardening, because I've stuck with it long enough, is because it looks dead on the outside does not mean that it's done. It's in the ground and I fertilize it and I water it. And I would say 90% of the time, if I'm patient, after a little while, I'll start to see it making new leaves. Even though we might have grown up in traumatic families where trauma occurred, and then there's that perhaps additional crisis of transitioning from that family into adulthood, which happens Often when we go to college for the first time, that's what happened for me. It doesn't mean that there's not the capacity for you to thrive, ultimately. There's something so moving in in this, and I wonder if you could kind of name a little bit more about what's so moving 
to you in this metaphor? Part of what moves me is pride, frankly, that I have accomplished what I've accomplished personally, professionally, that I have thrived in spite of things that have happened to me. Just because it looks dead on the outside doesn't mean it's dead on the inside or it's done, Mm -hmm. as you Mm -hmm. said, and that you have personally experienced that kind of transition Mm -hmm. and gradual transformation. And I am curious if that personal experience of yours helps you trust other people who, you know, might come to you at a very, very low point in their life Mm. where they look or feel somewhat dead Mm. on the outside too. In my career, I've done a lot of grief and crisis work, a lot of bereavement work. I used to work in the medical field a lot with people who are experiencing chronic illness and their loved ones. You know, if we use the gardening metaphor, I'm both the plant and the gardener. Experience has taught me personally, but also professionally, not only how to cultivate the plant, but how to cultivate patients too, and how to cultivate a skill set that helps that plant thrive. So it's a emerging of, of these various traits at the end of the day, what's inherent in the plant is the capacity for thriving. And as the gardener, I've acquired a couple of qualities, patience, knowledge, but at the end of the day, I can't make that plant grow new leaves. It's the plant's job and the, it was always within the plant's power to do that. Let's talk about this from the standpoint of the plant gets transplanted, right? Let's say a student mm-hmm. arrives arrives in college and maybe they show up in our counseling office with some issues related to boundaries. And, mm-hmm. and again, a lot of times it's not like students come in and say, I'm having trouble with boundaries. They'll say, right. I'm in this terrible relationship or mm-hmm. my parent calls me. 20 times a day and expects mm-hmm. that I pick up every time mm-hmm. they call and I'm, I'm having trouble focusing on studying because they're calling me all the time and they don't listen to my cues that I need to go. Or I, um, I think I was sexually assaulted last night, right? That can be mm-hmm. another um, terrible way in which boundaries might show up in the office, but I'm just going to give a few more examples because it's so common. Um, Students saying, you know, I've got this friend and they expect me to just kind of drop everything and go take care of them uh, when they're having a hard time. And if I don't do that, they get really mad at me and they shut me out. Mm -hmm. And I love this friend. And, but when I need them, they don't, they don't, they never answer the phone when I need them. Mm -hmm. Right. So, Mm -hmm. so many ways this can um, become challenging. When I start working with students around, you know, I'll say like, gosh, it sounds like maybe we need to spend some time talking about boundaries. It's like a close cousin of boundaries. The issue of self-valuing And what I mean by that is I have found it really hard to help people set, learn to set boundaries if they don't value themselves. Mm -hmm. And the the two seem to be so 
deeply interconnected in the therapy work that I've done. I wonder, I wonder what your experience with that has been, kind of where boundaries and, and self-value or self-worth might intersect. That's a really interesting question. I'm not sure I've, I've thought of those two as related before, but it's so clear to me now how they are. When we have poor boundaries, whether it's that um, they're too rigid or too loose or non-existent, at some point we have those boundaries because we must have learned that we don't count, that what we want doesn't matter. So if I want space to study, if I'm 18 and I just moved to college and I want space to study, I want time to myself, I don't want to go home every weekend and visit my parents. I want to stay in town and go to a football game. I'm reluctant to say that. I'm reluctant to assert myself because at some point I receive the message, not necessarily explicitly, at some point I receive the message that what I want doesn't matter, that what matters more is this other person's needs. So where I end and that other person begins is blurry. Their needs suddenly become my needs. I like what you said, Sarah, is that it's not usually that explicit. A student, especially when they're just transitioning out of their family of origin, doesn't usually come into a therapist's office and say, I'm having trouble differentiating from my parents. <laughs> it, it looks like other things, like my mom won't stop calling me, as you mentioned. Yes, that message of what I need doesn't matter or what other people, what someone else needs matters more than my needs seems to be at least one of the, the root problems with poor boundaries. So that feels so important. And you said it, you said it so simply and just right that what, what I need doesn't matter or what someone else needs matters more than what I need. Mm. And that dance of needs, right? Um, we do pick up, we do learn that dance so well growing up. And we usually learn it in relation to, we said family of origin or caregivers, but people who have power over us, right? Mm -hmm. Our caregivers have power. We are little, we are dependent on them. Mm -hmm. And we learn those dance steps around needs as a way to survive. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking what's power is such a, critical part of learning to set boundaries. Like it's much easier for me to say no to a friend than it is to say no to a boss. Yes. Yes. So we're taught in any hierarchical relationship that the person above us in authority, their needs are more important than ours. Um, and that our, do our job is to defer to them. So we learned deference growing up and especially one or two generations ago, and this is true in, to, di to, to different degrees in every culture, but I'm thinking specifically in the U.S., you know, do as you're told, children are seen and not heard kind of mentality. Uh, so we're told very early on, your job is to suppress what you need. Don't even bother asking because whatever it is that you need is not as important as what the adults need. I'm thinking of a specific example myself. I try to be very intentional as a parent. And again, this is true, I think, for all parents. We, we recognize the ways that our needs weren't met as children, and we try to correct those when we become parents ourselves. 
In my family of origin, it was expected that you kiss and hug family members always. It's a sign of respect. Um, it's a way that you greet people. It's a way that you say goodbye to people. But it, it didn't have anything to do with the child's affection or the child's desire to be affectionate. And when I reflect on that, that's where I first started learning about consent. So something that I've taught my son is that his body belongs to him and he never has to do anything with his body that he doesn't want to. And I've had to model healthy boundaries for him as he's gotten older because we might be in situations with especially older family members who, when they go to leave, want to touch him and he might not be interested in that. And he doesn't know how to navigate that. He's a kid. He's never, he doesn't have a script to follow, but I do. And so I've had to intervene before and model for him. Hey, do you, do you want to give a hug or a kiss? And then looking only at him and paying attention only to what he wants. He has often said no. And I have often said, okay, then we can say goodbye to aunt so-and-so and we walk away. And that way he's learning from the very beginning that his body belongs to him, that no one has the right to interact with his body in a way that he doesn't want. And he's learning how to assert that because he's seeing me do it for him. That's such a powerful example. I was thinking about someone that... I worked with who still had to be affectionate with a relative who had molested her mm -hmm. because the, the family didn't know about it. And that was the expectation. And just mm -hmm. that, so that, that, that there's so many potential applications of what you're talking about uh, with your son. And, you know, as you talk about, so you're, you're trying to be the good parent here, right? You're trying to model, healthy boundaries, giving him permission, really paying attention to his signals, listening to his voice, and teaching him about boundaries while he's still young. Mm -hmm. How do we help students learn about boundaries, you know, maybe after many years of not having those good examples? What are some things that you found helpful in kind of pointing students in the right pointing people in the right direction for doing some work around healthier boundaries? Mm. The place that I start, and this might just be my style as I tend to be very candid, I, I name the thing. And sometimes I'll say to a student or a young adult, you're 20 years old. Do you know that you're an adult? I mean, maybe not in a way that comes off as condescending, ideally, but that might be the first time that that person has had anyone acknowledge that they have the right to autonomy. So that's a place to start a conversation like your time belongs to you. Who you talk to on the phone is your choice. Or sometimes I'll ask reflecting, reflective questions like, so who's, who's the boss of your time or who gets to make decisions about your time? I'm hearing a student say, yes, but my parent pays my rent or my parent pays my tuition. Right. And I really like that you brought up earlier 
the conversation around power because we like to pretend that there isn't that power doesn't that that money doesn't really um, imply power and it almost always does and that early relationship where we're differentiating from our parents for the first time money is often tied up in that so we do feel a sense of obligation it's often implied it might not be explicit but there's it's an exchange in exchange for money i give you a phone call every day so ultimately the decision that has to take place is which is more important to you or which do you value more or which do you need more your autonomy or your parents money for rent it is a tough decision and yet i appreciate what you're saying because you're saying you get to make the choice mm-hmm. you get to you get to make the choice about which one you need more which one's more important to you they're difficult choices mm-hmm. if you say if you start setting more boundaries with the parent you might get your autonomy but you you may have to get a job right like that there's a trade-off but you're making it more explicit and more i know for me even if i have to choose between two hard things it feels better to at least acknowledge that i'm the one that gets to choose Mm -hmm. and that might be the first time that this young person has realized i actually I'm not being dragged behind this runaway train, that I actually can be the conductor. Um, and that can be scary and empowering. Sometimes the stakes aren't that high or they seem high. And then um, we start to set boundaries and it's rocky, but it's not catastrophic like that. Like, right, mm-hmm. you're not thrown out of your house. Like The other person in the relationship gradually starts to adjust. I was thinking about some barriers to practicing setting boundaries like even really simple ones like you go over to a friend's house and they keep their ac turned down really 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 Mm -hmm. low so it's super cold in their house Mm -hmm. and you sit down and they ask you how's the temperature how's the temperature and you say it's good it's good Mm -hmm. i'm good well do you i know it can be kind of chilly in here do you want like a sweater no 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 i'm good right there if i'm if i'm saying no no i'm good i'm denying my needs and trying to please this other person or trying to Right. right so i was thinking like one of the really challenging things about setting a boundary is that we're socialized to not make other people uncomfortable I'm thinking about what you said earlier about how boundaries are tied to value. I also think about boundaries being tied to communication styles and patterns of communication that we learned growing up. And so in that situation, if I'm a guest at someone's house and they ask me explicitly, they're asking me about my boundaries. At some point, I received the message that my comfort regarding temperature is so unimportant that even when someone asks me about it, I'm still not allowed to disclose the truth. And or I've learned a message about if I'm honest, other people get uncomfortable and then there's some kind of consequence for that. So at some point that person learned that it's safer to deny having any needs than it is to disclose even the most minute need to someone who's explicitly asking. I personally had to overcome so much fear Uh, to learn how to say no. 
mm-hmm. or to learn how to say, yes, I need a sweater, right? Or, but mm-hmm. to say, no, I don't want to do that with you or no, I don't want you to touch me like that or mm-hmm. no, I don't, I'm not ready to have this conversation right now. Mm-hmm. I was so afraid that the other person was going to blow up at me, that they were going to um, get angry or, or just kind of shut down and walk away. Mm-hmm. I had all of those responses from one of my caregivers growing up, um, kind of an explosive mm-hmm. uh, explosiveness. The person got really hurt. Uh, very, very deeply hurt when I would express certain needs for autonomy and and then they would withdraw. And it was that whole process was so painful. Um, and I was very close to this person. I loved this person very, very, very much. Um, so it's complicated, right? It's not it's yeah. not simple. I had to learn to tolerate the possibility that somebody was going to blow up and reject me or pull away if I started to respect my own boundaries and expect that other people would respect my boundaries. And that was really hard. I mean, I did a lot of counseling to work on that. I did a lot of role-playing with people that I trusted, trying to learn to say, no, I don't like that, or no, I don't want that, or I don't want it like that, mm-hmm. or I don't want it now. Boundaries are so complex. I think it's probably, there's there, there's almost nothing that you can talk about in terms of interpersonal uh, interactions without talking about boundaries. And some of the examples we're using today are these very concrete or clear issues and as we start to work on our boundaries, I, I like that you disclose, Sarah, that we find out there are even more layers. There are kind of micro boundaries, and there are all of these ways that we're not even aware of that we have given in and denied our, you know, been inauthentic to ourselves or untrue to ourselves. I think I was thinking not just families of origin, but also societal expectations, gender norms, for example, and all of the things that I learned about, especially regarding consent or romantic relationships, what I learned from TV or magazines or girlfriends or women in my family about not just yes or no, do I want to have sex, but there are so many more boundaries than that. Like you were saying, when, how, what's okay, what's not okay. Well, maybe we could talk about practice for a little while. Okay. Okay. When I think about practice, I like to think about any kind of new practice, starting easy and working up to the hard things, Mm -hmm. right? And so if I have like the biggest boundary issues with a parent and I've been in that pattern now for 20 years with them, Mm -hmm. then I might look at maybe there's a friend that I'm pretty close with and that we have a pretty good relationship with, but there are a couple of boundary issues. Mm -hmm. Why don't I start there? Why don't I start with boundaries with that friend? And then, you know, as I gain more confidence in this new skill that I'm learning, I might ultimately work up to talking to my parent Mm -hmm. about it. And so some of the ways of practicing, so it's one, I think it's noticing that there's an issue in a relationship and really starting to reflect on, okay, so what's the issue? I might have never actually even stated my needs. 
so I may have never have stated my needs and yet grown extremely resentful that the other person hasn't noticed my needs or mm-hmm. cared for my needs. So the, so I guess I first have to think about what are my needs? What are my needs in this relationship? Where do I want my boundary to be? Mm-hmm. Right. And have I, have I, how have I tried to assert it or not? And maybe starting there, right, really breaking it down. Yeah. It's so complicated and it can be so scary to think about changing the rules of a relationship. Um, especially as we were talking earlier, if the stakes are high, if it's a relationship with a parent or, um, you know, a romantic partner that you are very emotionally invested in, it can be hard to even reflect on your own needs. And so sometimes it starts with just writing down, what is it that I want? And maybe you write that down and you realize that that's not exactly it. And so you ball it up and you throw it away and you write down a different version and you keep honing it until you understand exactly what it is that you're seeking. My, one of my therapists who taught me a lot about this stuff, she said, you know, working on getting clear, getting clarity, getting clarity about what I want and what I need. And that that can take, right, several drafts Mm -hmm. to, because that may not be something that I've grown up really thinking about. What is it that I need here? Because if you grew up learning those messages, if you've grown up learning that what you need doesn't matter, then why reflect on what you need? You just automatically, you can skip from A to C, no reason to visit B because you already know that it doesn't matter. So we have to unlearn skipping over B and go back and visit what it is that I need in this relationship or want. What happens when you do get that clarity? Like... I need to have permission to say, no, I don't want to hang out with you tonight, mm-hmm. but, I, but I, I would like to hang out with you next Thursday, but I don't want to hang out with you tonight. And I need that to be okay. I need that not to turn into like a catastrophic disruption in our friendship. A place that I often advise students or clients to start, or the place that our conversation starts is... Where, what are the stakes in this relationship? If this is a relationship where there's violence or um, trauma going on, a lot of delicacy is required and negotiation about boundaries might not be a safe place. So that's an important discussion to have. If it's a relationship where you, know, you feel safe or the stakes are lower and it is you know, a conversation about this friend is always expecting me to go to the movies with them. And I don't really like going to the movies that often. Then realizing that you don't like going to the movies and, and this is true. This is good advice for any relationship, finding a time where emotions are not, when things aren't heated, finding a time when things are cooled off to sit down with that person and say, here's what I enjoy. And here's also what I need you to know about me. And I really like it when we go to dinner, but I don't, I don't really enjoy going to movies and it's not you. It's just, I don't really like spending my time that way. Yeah. Whatever's true for you. And that conversation you can practice, uh, like you mentioned earlier, Sarah, with a friend or with the therapist. And what's often useful is if the therapist plays you as the client and you, because the fear, you know, that other party best, you know, that other party better than the therapist does. And so you can more directly address 
what you think, how you think that other person might respond, how you think that friend might respond, and the therapist can model for you what it looks like to set healthy boundaries. Can we do something like that right now? Because I get confused about who's the therapist and who's the student sure. in this. Okay. Uh, yeah, it wasn't clear. <laughs> no, that's okay. I just let's have, let's set let's set it up. What's the issue? Um, do you want to use the movies example? Yeah, let's do let's do movies, but let's add something. Let's say that this in this friendship, I'm also loaning you my like you're always asking to borrow clothes. Okay. To go to go out, and I've just been saying yes, but you don't give them back. Okay. Uh, or when you do, like they're like you didn't launder them, you know. Okay. So there's movies and there's clothes because I haven't been stating my needs. Um, so are we doing both? Yeah, let's make it a little more complicated, okay? Okay. <laughs> because usually usually to have a boundary conversation to realize it's needed, things have maybe built up a little bit. That's a good point. Okay. So, okay, so that's the situation. There's these two friends. So which role are you going to play? I will be the intrusive friend. Okay. Okay. And so, and I will be, I'll be me who doesn't want to keep going to these movies and also want something different to happen when I loan you my clothes. Okay. Okay. We're going to play this out and just try to get some practice. Okay. And what I, what would help me is if you give me a little bit of pushback at first. Okay. Oh, don't, don't make worry. okay. Don't make <laughs> this super easy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so Judah, I, I was hoping maybe we could talk about something. Um, is for a little while that's been bothering me. Is is now an okay time? Like, do you have a little bit of time where you're not busy? You're stressed out working on something else. Yeah. You. You. I mean, sure. You look really serious, though. I didn't do yeah. something wrong, did I? Well, um, n no, not really, but I, but I, there is something that uh, in our relationship that's been bothering me that I need to talk about. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's actually two things. Um, one is that I, I know that we go to a lot of movies together and that that's something that you really enjoy doing and seems like you yeah. enjoy. We yeah. love going to the movies. We really had a good time last week. Yeah, well, so actually, and I know that, you know, I've been going to movies, so maybe there's no way that you knew this about me, but I actually don't really like going to the movies very much. Well, I mean, we've been hanging out for like three years. We've been going to the movies every week for three years. What do you I mean know. you don't like it? it? To me, like, I just, it feels... Like I'd rather be doing something different with my time. And I I have kept saying yes to you because I know how much you like going to the movies and that you said you don't like to do it alone. And so I've been saying yes. I've been saying yes because I don't want you to have to go to the movies alone, but I really, I really don't like spending my time that way. And I mean, that's fine. I guess, I guess I'll just, um, I guess I just won't go to the movies anymore. It sounds like you're, it sounds like you're hurt. Well, yeah. I mean, you've basically been lying to me. I can see how, how it felt that way. Um, I think that, 
I think that it starts with I've been lying to myself. I've been trying to convince myself that this is something that I like doing or at least that it's worth it to do it even though I don't like it just to so we could keep being friends and so you wouldn't be mad at me. I'm kind of I'm kind of upset that you think I'm a person that would be uh, like mad at you or that you think that I'm somebody that would force you to the movies or do something you don't want to do. I didn't know you thought of me that way. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good point. Uh, And you're, you're right. I have been worried about that, but you know, I think that, I think that it's not about you. It's about, It's about me and how I grew up always saying yes because I was afraid that I would lose somebody I loved if I said no. And then I've just learned how to do that my whole life. And I just brought that pattern into our friendship without even realizing it. Okay. I mean, it's just the movies. So are you mad at me? Can we still be friends? I mean... I don't know. My feelings are hurt and I don't know who I'm going to go to the movies with. Uh, And I kind of wonder like if if there's anything else that you have been upset with me about that you haven't been honest about. Well, now that you, you mentioned it, there actually is something else that's been bothering me. And (sighs) yeah, I know I've just kind of let this stuff build up. I'm sorry. You know how you're, you often borrow my, my dresses, like when you go clubbing. Yeah, you always tell me how great they look on me. Well, they do. They do. Um, but, you know, it, it bothers me that you don't return them quickly. Like sometimes you'll have, like I think you have like three of my dresses right now that I love. They're in you. my closet. Do you want them right now? Um, let's go get them. Well, I would like to get them back, but but more importantly, I would I would actually like you to return them like within a few days after you borrow them. Well, whatever. I just, I, I'll, I just won't borrow, borrow them anymore. It's not, it's not worth it. Like, yeah, don't worry about it. I just won't bother them any, borrow them anymore. That That's okay, Judah. But I, I want you to know that I'm happy to loan you my dresses. I just would like to get them back after, quickly after you borrow them so that I have a chance to wear them if I want to wear them. So yeah, I'd, I'd love to get the dresses and I'm just going to say it one last time. If you want to keep borrowing them, you can. You know, just what? Please. It's, whatever. It's fine. Okay. It's fine. Okay. Let me go. I'll just go get them. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Whoo. You're not going easy on me there, Judah, are you? You know, I thought about going easy on you, and then I realized that that was my own inclination to meet your needs in that situation. So it was really hard for me to parody somebody who violates boundaries because I'm accustomed to being in the role of the person whose boundaries are violated. Well, I think this was a a great example of why we often bring a lot of fear into these conversations about boundaries is that there's a good potential for the other person to be hurt. I'm thinking of my own relationships in college when your communication skills are so brand new. I ended more than one uh, roommate relationship over something similar, something of this quality where, and especially the communication uh, styles that we learn as women, where we learn not to be assertive and we learn not to be clear about what we need when you have, you know, four 
girls, four women living in a house together um, and feelings get hurt, but nothing ever gets talked about. Yeah, I'm remembering those days. <laughs> well, and so your initial reaction was to be hurt and angry and actually to withdraw, right? You're pulling, you're pulling back. You're saying, well, fine, I just won't. I just won't ask you to the movies anymore. And fine, I just won't ever ask you to borrow dresses anymore. Mm-hmm. And I was aware, I was kind of like falling over myself to say, what well, you still can, you can borrow dresses, right? Mm-hmm. And what may, what may actually be important here is in real life, like if this happened, for me to pause and go away from the friendship or the interaction and really kind of process what happened, like, oh my gosh, first of all, give myself a lot of credit. I did it. I had that hard conversation with you, right? I stated my needs and I actually stayed pretty calm. You were kind of taking it personally and I I didn't descend to that level, right? I just stayed pretty calm and kept stating my needs. And frankly, Judah, you you were kind of a jerk in -hmm. response, right? Mm -hmm. Like you didn't treat me respectfully. Like you didn't treat me the way that I would want a real friend to treat me. And that might have been because you were hurt. Yeah. And that maybe you need to go away and process and you'll come back and like apologize or we can have a more productive conversation. But maybe also this is just not a friendship where you really... Maybe you don't actually care about me that much. Maybe you just really like having someone to go to the movies with you and you really like my dresses. I think it's Glennon Doyle. I don't want to misattribute this quote, but I think it's Glennon Doyle who says something along the lines of the people that that are most threatened by our boundaries are the people with whom we need to most often set consistent, healthy boundaries. That's something that it's taken me a lot of practice to learn. And that's something I want to emphasize about boundaries. The first time you, you practice this new skill set, it is terrifying and it feels horrible and awkward and it gets better the more you practice. What I've learned over time is that's the clue to me that this relationship isn't healthy for me. If I ask for what I need in a clear and neutral and loving way and the other person responds with aggression or by withdrawing, or like a jerk, as you mentioned, it might be that this isn't a good relationship for me to be in because this person isn't really interested in what I need. It's easier to have those ruptures or disconnects with peer relationships than when there's someone in power. Because when there's someone Mm -hmm. in power, we may not always have the option to totally withdraw from the relationship. Right. There's often often not the option of ditching the entire relationship, especially, and there are some people who are estranged from their caregivers, but more often that's, doesn't, that's not a dispensable relationship or that's not where people go to first. They're not likely to toss out their relationship with their mom or their dad. When you realize that this other person is totally unaccustomed to even hearing your needs, then the question is, well, how do I gain ground incrementally? And it, Sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back. I will uh, share kind of by way of closing out this conversation that with my caregiver that I've had a lot of challenges with, we have been negotiating this ground with one another since I was about 15. And Mm -hmm. so about 25 years and it's gotten 
much, much, much better. And we've had periods of time where we didn't talk to one another mm-hmm. and, and then kind of came back to the table after um, our hurt feelings had cooled down. Sometimes months or years had gone by without a lot of contact, but mm-hmm. that over time our relationship has gotten healthier and that can happen. And it hasn't been smooth. It hasn't been linear. It's been really painful, but mm-hmm. but we're in a much better place as parent-child than we started from. And that I think that as I have learned how to do boundaries differently in that relationship, I've noticed that other relationships that I have have also improved. Maybe by way of closing, ask you to reflect a little bit on that that journey of setting boundaries with your caregiver. Yeah. I, I still have mixed feelings about the caregiver who, my caregiver, my parent who was abusive, actually um, died while I was in college. I often have reflected as I've, you know, done my own emotional work. I've often reflected on when and where I might have eventually set healthier boundaries that process of setting healthy boundaries was interrupted prematurely. Not that there's ever a place where you land where you're like, well, I'm done. This relationship is perfect. It's, an, it's always an evolving process. But I was in the very early stages of that. I was an undergrad. And then my relationship with my living parent, who's the passive parent, more passive, um, it was really interesting to see how that relationship evolved in the absence of the abusive parent. It was this really interesting dance back and forth. We would be very close and in what's called enmeshed, meaning our boundaries overlap a lot. And uh, that happened for a while. And then we would go through periods of estrangement where some we would have some falling out and I would have very rigid boundaries. And I've the pendulum has landed in the middle now. I've had more practice with boundaries. It's interesting because when you're setting boundaries and you adhere to them consistently, what you're doing is you're shaping the other person's behavior. And so that other person learns what to expect from you when you stick to your guns. I've also learned to modify my expectations of that other person and what they're, you know, what they're able to do, what they're able to give me, which of my needs they're able to meet, where else I could get those needs met if I can't get those needs met by that parent that wasn't a concise answer, but it's a learning process and it takes a lot of practice. It's like any other skill set. It takes a lot of practice and you do get better and you do come to a resolution. You might not know what that is at the beginning, but you will land at a place that feels peaceful. Thanks, Judah. Thanks for listening. You can find CWC Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found please leave us a rating and review us. Email us at cwc-talks at ufl.edu with your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. Show notes, resources, and more can be found at counseling.ufl.edu slash cwctalks.